everybody, and welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. As usual, let's start off the week with a little bit of news, all the news that I think you need to know about security and privacy. Uh, one of the big things I want to call your attention to this week, in case you haven't heard and probably haven't, uh, there is a bill now in the U.S. Congress uh, to protect your privacy rights at the border. Now, you may now you may recall that we discussed this topic at length uh, just a few weeks ago with uh, Adam Schwartz from the EFF. Um, we called that episode uh, Protecting Your Privacy at the U.S. Border. And if you have not seen that, I highly recommend you go back and check that one out. There's a lot of really great info in there and kind of lays the groundwork for why this is really so important. Uh, this bill, uh, which is being sponsored at least in the Senate by... Um, Wyoming Senator Ron Wyden and Kentucky Senator Rand Paul, uh, though honestly I don't really care who's, who's, who's sponsoring this thing, it just needs to happen. It's a great, uh, it's a great first effort, and, and we really hope this gets passed. So um, uh, I encourage you to use the link that's on the podcast website to go and show your support for this bill, uh, because the democracy we are in only works when uh, the people are informed and they speak up. So folks, please speak up. This is a very important bill. Basically, what it says is now uh, at the U.S. border, the Custom and Border Patrol uh, agents can only search your electronic devices if they have a probable cause warrant, which, frankly, is exactly what our Constitution says that our law enforcement agency is supposed to do before they go digging around in our stuff. So um, it's a really important bill. And for whatever reason, there's been a, a really sharp increase in the, in the amount of searches on our digital devices. Now, I'm talking cell phones. I'm talking on tablets, laptops. Uh, where basically the, the border agent is within their, currently, within their rights to say they want to search those devices. And, and it's not just, you know, they could be looking at all your emails ever, your tweets, your uh, text messages, your instant messages, the files on your hard drive, the files in Dropbox, really just about anything that they can access through our devices. And today that happens to be almost all of our digital lives. So this is a very important bill. Um, the, the the really cool tool from the EFF um, will, will walk you through phoning each of your representatives. You tell them where you live. Uh, it will tell you who your congressman is It'll and call uh, that congressman is, or congressperson um, and tell you what it is you need to make sure that you tell them. It'll tell them which bill it is that you support and and that way you can't you can't forget anything. Uh, it'll walk you through calling each one of them in order. Uh, you'll give them your, your message. It'll hang up and it'll say, thank you. I'm going to call your next one. Uh, it's really cool. It's a great tool. So anyway, there's a link on the podcast for this. Check it out and please show your support for this uh, and let your representatives know that we want our constitutional rights to extend to us at the border as well. The other big story from the last week is the latest dump from a group some mysterious group calling themselves the Shadow Brokers. Uh, and last week they unleashed um, a ton of major vulnerabilities in Windows and some other systems um, that they basically hacked from the NSA. So we heard about these guys first last summer. Uh, they dropped a bunch of stuff uh, back back then that kind of showed the things that the NSA was doing and some of the vulnerabilities that they were using uh, to spy on others. And of course, once those things are made public, those exact same vulnerabilities can now used to be can now be used against us. And and the the ones that were released this week initially looked really bad. I mean, actually, they are bad. the The bugs that they found were bad. They allowed bad guys to completely take over your Windows computers and things like that. The good news is that Microsoft has already patched most, if not all, of these bugs. A lot of them were patched 
patched last month, which raised some eyebrows uh, because how did Microsoft know about these things before the Shadow Brokers released them? So, you know, again, we don't know who these guys are. We don't know how they operate. It may be that the NSA figured out, you know, that these things were going to be released and then did the right thing and contacted Microsoft and, and ahead of time and said, these things are coming out. We, we need you to get these things patched so that people's computers aren't vulnerable to these, these bugs, these, uh, these software flaws. Uh, and Microsoft jumped on it and got them fixed and sent them out uh, as part of their monthly software update process. Uh, we don't know. Uh, maybe, maybe Microsoft actually contacted these shadow brokers somehow and paid them to let them know ahead of time what these things were going to be. It's all speculation. We don't, we, have, we don't know. But the good news is that however it happened, uh, Microsoft did get, get these vulnerabilities patched. So what does that mean for you? So the good news is, is if you've got your Microsoft Windows auto update feature turned on, then you already have these bugs fixed. You don't have to worry about it. Um, if you do not have that feature turn, turned on, however, you really need to get that turned on. Uh, there's a link on the podcast page that I provided from Microsoft that walks you through how to set this up and make sure that that's turned on for your computer. Please, please follow that link and make sure you've got that turned on. By de- I think it's on by default on most new uh, on most Windows systems today, uh, but I wouldn't count on that. Please use the link, go check, make sure that you've got that set up because the best defense on all of these things is to have the latest and greatest software. Keep in mind, of course, that I'm not just talking about computers. In this case, we're talking about Windows computers, so PCs, your laptops, your desktop computers running Windows 7, Windows 10, whatever the case may be. Um, but this also applies to your mobile devices, and we talked about this in recent podcasts as well. Uh, you need to make sure that you set the auto feature, uh, the auto update feature on those as well, and take those operating system updates as soon as possible. So in just a minute, I'm going to talk to you about one of my favorite security tips uh, that I think a lot of people overlook having to do with creating uh, non-administrator accounts for your computers. Uh, but first, I'd like to talk a little bit more uh, about this shadow brokers thing and dig into it from a little bit for a little bit of a different angle because there's more than just the obvious obvious issues here. While the initial impact is about just making sure that you're protected from these these bugs and that you're kept you kept your software up to date, there's really a, a much bigger issue here that that I think needs to be called out. And so I'm going to spend a little time talking about this. And this is this is a little editorializing on my part, but I think it's important. And I and I, if, if nothing else, it's a debate that we as a country uh, need to have, and it's something we need to be thinking about so that we can express our concerns or our opinions to our representatives uh, so that we feel like our government is doing their best to protect us. So let's let's talk a little bit about what, what actually happened here. So we don't really know who these shadow brokers are. Um, maybe it's a foreign government. Maybe it's a group of independent hackers. Uh, maybe it's a whistleblower within the NSA or, you know, some weird combination of all those things or something else entirely. We, we, we don't know who these people are, but the fact of the matter is that, that these guys, uh, these hackers, have pulled out a bunch of important hacking tools used by the NSA, uh, presumably against foreign actors, people that we, need, we feel that we need to spy on. Um, so that there's a lot of implications to that. First of all, it means that this stuff is not safe. If the, so the, the, the NSA itself was hacked. Uh, these tools that were supposedly private, supposedly secret tools used by our uh, intelligence agencies, 
were now released to the public, to everyone on the planet, and therefore could be turned right around and used against us. Uh, it's very common when things like this are released that uh, exploits um, against these vulnerabilities crop up and are seen in use on the internet within 24 hours. The hackers out there have nothing better to do. So when, when they've got a new tool, when they, when they learned about a new vulnerability, they know exactly how to take that and run with it. Uh, all, you really, all you need is this chink in the armor, basically. Uh, and these are all supposedly secret chinks in, 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 in the software armor that once they get released are no longer secret. And these guys pounce on these things and immediately try to exploit them because they know they're, they're racing against the clock because companies like Microsoft, once these things are released, are also immediately trying to fix them and push out updates to everybody so that they are no longer vulnerable. So while that's that's all well and good, and you know Microsoft obviously has a lot of engineers and a lot of money uh, that they could throw at this problem and and get these fixes cranked out, um, but there's just some practical realities in getting these fixes out that make it make it actually benefit the hacker. For one thing, not everybody, as I've said, not everybody has this auto update feature turned on. So even when these the the software bugs are fixed and released, not everybody gets those bugs. So anybody who doesn't get those bugs is still vulnerable. And also, big companies like Microsoft, even they have lots of people and lots of money, but that also makes them slower than some hacker in his garage who can crank these things out immediately and start using them. So in cases like this, when, when these zero-day vulnerabilities are dropped, it's really an advantage to the hacker more than it is to the, uh, the software maker. So that's fact one, that the NSA itself was hacked. And that these things that the NSA believed were secret, that it could keep its hands on and, and, and keep away from the bad guys, because it considers itself, of course, the good guys, that, that they still get out. These secrets are not always secret. They're not, they can't be kept secret forever. So that's one aspect of this. But let's think about this from another angle. So we realize that the NSA now has been sitting on these software vulnerabilities for at least months, perhaps years. That means that the NSA knew about these flaws and instead of going to Microsoft and say, hey, you know, we found some problems with your software here, problems that could cause, could allow, a, you know, some nefarious person to hack your products and hurt your customers. Instead of going to Microsoft with these bugs, they said, you know what? I'd rather sit on these bugs and keep them to ourselves because we want to be able to use these bugs against the people that we don't like. And basically they had to do a cost benefit analysis and say, we're going to hope somehow that we were the only people that were smart enough to find these bugs. And therefore they will only ever be used by us against the people that we choose. Not, used against us by some other hacker or some other foreign government that somehow managed to find these exact same bugs that we did. Now, there was supposed to be a process in the U.S. government for dealing with exactly the situation. Uh, the Obama administration, I think after the Snowden revelations, basically came out with a policy that said, you need to go through this very specific process and through a panel of people that, that look at these bugs that you find and evaluate them and decide on a case-by-case -case basis which of these bugs can remain secret and which of these things should be disclosed so they can be fixed. 
the idea, the original purpose of this was that most of these bugs would be disclosed. That is, the NSA has found a bug in, let's say, Windows 10, and that bug would allow somebody over the internet to break into a given computer and install a virus or malware or spy on that person and pull off files or whatever the case may be. And unless the spy agency could basically show that the bug was so obscure that nobody else was likely to find it and that they needed this bug for some specific national security reason, that that would be the only reasons that they would be able to keep this bug secret and not go to Microsoft so that Microsoft could fix this bug. But it's obvious from the, the tools that the shadow brokers have now leaked, these tools that the NSA was using, that the bugs, the, the list of software vulnerabilities that they were sitting on, that they did not meet those criteria, that basically the NSA was still sitting on bugs that they really should have disclosed. So I'm not pretending this is a black and white issue. This is obviously something that we all need to be thinking about, and, and the decisions here are not easy. First of all, how do you, how do you decide whether or not a particular bug is so obscure that nobody else could find it but you. Obviously, the NSA has a lot of very smart people, and they've got a lot of money and time to be spending on looking for these things, and they find, they're likely to be finding things that, that others won't find. But how can you possibly know that nobody, other, nobody else, no other hackers, which, who are also very smart and very resourceful, or other governments. I mean, think of Russia and China and some of these other countries. They've got a lot of really smart people, too. And they're out looking for the exact same bugs. So how can you possibly know that no one else has found these bugs? So that's part one. Part two, how do you, how do you make the judgment call as to whether or not we're better off having an offensive tool that leaves us defenseless or defending ourselves and thereby preventing ourselves from also using that tool against somebody else. That's a tough decision. I'm not here to say that this is a simple, straightforward uh, decision. And in every single case, uh, we should be, uh, our, we, uh, our intelligence agencies should be taking these bugs to the software vendors and saying, you, you should fix this. Uh, there will be some strange cases, but it's obvious from the kind of things that were dumped from the shadow brokers that they're, that they're erring completely on the other side uh, of, of what the intent of, of the Obama administration um, panels were meant to address. So what I'm saying is that I think that we've gone too far in the one direction, that the pendulum needs to swing back in favor of defense over offense. Because it should be obvious at this point that secrets don't stay secret. The NSA, our most powerful or supposedly most powerful hacking agency, one of the most world-renowned hacking agencies on the planet, was still hacked. These things that supposedly they were going to keep secret were not kept secret. The bottom line here is that the hackers will be hacked. So at the end of the day, even if these agencies firmly believe that, that they were super smart and nobody else is going to figure out these bugs, they still get out. Not because somebody else figured them out even, but because somebody decided that they could steal them or release them if in the case of maybe a whistleblower. I don't know. It doesn't Honestly, it doesn't matter. They got out. So it's obvious that we cannot keep these things secret. Now, the bugs that were released last week by the Shadow Brokers was with much fanfare for political reasons. They, they wanted the world to know that they were going to do this and that they had done this. But what about the, the hacking groups or the foreign governments that, that don't want people to know about it? What about the, one, what about the ones that are, that are 
that are secretly doing this or privately releasing these things that we don't even know about. It's got to it's got to be happening. And so this brings me to my main point. Our government's primary job is protecting us, not attacking others. In my view, that instead of hoarding all these vulnerabilities and, and hoping and praying that we're the only ones that, that have access to these things and that we're only ones smart enough to figure it out and further hoping that we can keep a lid on these things and not let them out, not expose this Pandora's box, instead, in almost every case, I believe that it's better for us to all be safer than to try and hope that we are the only ones that, that know about these chinks in our armor. And let's also think about the economic impacts of this. So these bugs cost companies in the, in the U.S. and everywhere, I mean, anywhere these bugs are found, billions of dollars to fix. And that's, that's just one aspect. It also causes lost sales. So if, if some company like Microsoft or whatever is, is tarnished by, by the, all these bugs that are found, instead of having them fixed, if, if, if other companies believe that the software is inferior, then those companies are going to lose sales to some other company that they believe is superior. And I know that we've lost billions of dollars from articles I've read in the past uh, as U.S. corporations over these issues because uh, other companies, you've got to realize that these companies, Microsoft and, and all these other companies, are selling worldwide. And if other com- countries can't depend on these products to, to be secure, they're not going to buy them. So that translates into lost sales and lost growth as an economy. And ultimately, that means lost jobs. Now, our world economy is tremendously dependent on the internet and computers, uh, and and that's not a bad thing. I mean, these these tools, these marvelous, amazing tools, have launched entire new industries, and have allowed other existing industries industries to go into all sorts of different new areas and to, to flourish, and make tons of money. The internet has just been a phenomenal phenomenal thing, and and the advancement of the computers. Um, has done wonders uh, for this planet already. I'm not saying these are bad things. We, we have to just accept the fact that, that our lives are now dependent on these products working. And therefore, they've got to be safe and they've got to be secure. And our government, I think, in my opinion, should be doing everything it can to make these things secure and safe. And as they find these bugs, in almost every case, they really should be going to the, the vendors, the software vendors, and having them fixed so that we're all safer as a result. It's important to note that our intelligence agencies have many other methods to do their work by, by, by going to the software vendors and, and having these bugs fixed. It doesn't mean they can no longer do their jobs. That, that's important to understand. There are many other spying techniques. I mean, for instance, what did, we, what did we ever do before the Internet was even around or computers were, were nearly as popular as they were? There's all sorts of techniques and technologies that they can use today to, to do the work that they need to do to keep us safe without basically allowing all of us to be vulnerable by not getting these bugs fixed. You're listening to the America Out Loud Talk Radio Network. It's where we say, let the silent voices be heard. You'll find a whole host of shows and a great lineup back at AmericaOutloud.com. And also, get the apps. We now stream 24-7 on Android and Apple. Just look for America Out Loud Talk Radio. Okay, now I've got a great tip for you. Uh, This is something that I think uh, 
everybody should be doing and yet hardly anybody actually does in practice. This is a fantastic tip with all sorts of great benefits and uh, I'm going to tell you about it right now. So when we talk about defense, one of the key key principles of, uh, of software defense is what we call least privilege. Uh, and the notion of least privilege is basically the old kind of need to know that you always see in spy movies or whatever. You don't tell anybody anything that they don't need to know just in case somebody gets compromised. And the quote that I always love to bring up when I, when I discuss this topic is a classic from Ben Franklin. And it says that three men could keep a secret if two of them are dead. So basically what it's saying is don't trust anybody that any further than you have to. And if we think back to, to my castle analogy um, that I always like to use when I talk about defense, uh, who has keys to the castle itself? Now, you've got your, you know, your outer walls or whatever, and you maybe have your town guard. Uh, but does every one of the uh, every one of the guards have access to the castle itself? Uh, what about the treasure room or the dungeon? No, of course they don't. You've you've compartmentalized the trust. Only certain key people have those keys, and not and it's not necessary that one person has even all those keys. You might have uh, a certain set of keys for the jailers and a different set of keys for the people that are guarding the treasure room and for guarding your bedroom or whatever the case may be, right? So you compartmentalize these things and, and not everybody has access to everything. There are different access privileges that you give to different people because not everybody needs access to everything or they don't necessarily need access to it all at the same time. So let's think about like your personal life. Let's let's talk about real world scenarios today. So who, who has a key to your house? Probably everybody in your family. Who has a key to your car? Maybe just you or maybe just you and your spouse. Um, what about your safe deposit box? Now that's probably just you. And maybe again, maybe just your, just your spouse, but that's not something that you just give to everybody in the family. But let's take that even a step further and think about that safe deposit key. Do you safe deposit box key? Do you carry that with you everywhere you go all the time? Is that on your key ring your, that you have in your pocket all the time? Probably not. Why? Because you're also not trusting yourself at all times. You're, if you were robbed, then somebody not only has a key to your house and your car, but they also now have a key to your safe deposit box. And that safe deposit box could have some really important stuff in it. So you even don't trust yourself all the time to have access to everything at all times. You, you've realized that, that it's not safe to always have everything with you that would allow you to access everything you have all the time. So how does this apply to computers? How do we take these analogies and think about these same things with computers? Well, every modern computer today, every Windows PC, every Macintosh from Apple has the ability to have separate user accounts. Now, you may know this, you may not know this, but I'm betting that even if you know this, you probably have not used this. I don't know why, but it seems like a lot of people just, for some reason, decide that it's too much of a pain in the pain in the butt for everybody to have their own account. So they all just share one big account. And of course, that causes its own set of problems. Now, maybe because of that, because everyone's got their own emails and things like that, that maybe you actually have decided, okay, let, let's create different accounts. But did you also know that every one of those accounts can also have different sets of privileges? So in particular... Uh, there's an administrator privilege, and then there's just a regular everyday user privilege. Most accounts are set up, at least on Windows for sure, by default as being administrator accounts. Certainly the, the, the default account that comes out of the box is, is the administrator account because you need that administrator privilege to update the software and install applications and set up the other accounts. 
So by default, the first account and first and only account that's always set up on every computer is an administrator account. But unfortunately, a lot of people just keep reusing that same account. And even if they do set up new accounts for a different people in the family or whatever, they also set them up as administrative users. Now, here's, here's the stunning statistic that is going to help you understand why the tip I'm about to give you is so important. So according to a recent study by a company called Avecto, uh, and by recent, I mean uh, last couple of years, 92% of all Windows security vulnerabilities that were considered critical, uh, and this was 2013, uh, in 2013, could have been prevented or significantly mitigated if the user had not had full admin privileges. 92%. Furthermore, removing the admin rights would have mitigated 100% of the critical vulnerabilities that were found in Internet Explorer. And by the way, if you're using Internet Explorer, please stop. <laughs> Internet Explorer uh, is really bad when it comes to, to security. So uh, I would recommend uh, Firefox or Chrome. Um, anyway, that's, that's a different subject for a different day. So think about that for a minute. What that basically is saying is that malware, bad software, viruses, ransomware, uh, any of these things that you might mistakenly get uh, on your computer, they can do whatever you can do. So if you are an administrator on your computer, that means you basically have full unfettered access to change or do anything on that computer. And that also means that if you get a virus or a malware on your computer, that computer also has admin privileges. That's why you need to be using a non-admin account all the time. And the only time you should ever need the admin account is when you're, you know, changing some very important system setting, which are usually security settings, uh, setting up things like automatic software updates, uh, installing certain applications, um, doing things that are really important that, that, are, that have security implications. Those things can only be done by an administrator account on the computer. The other thing that this does is it compartmentalizes all the problems that you could be having on a computer. So that means that if uh, one of your kids uh, goes online and downloads a bunch of really bad stuff and gets a lot of viruses or malware on their account, if they are not an administrator, they will not be able to, the malware, the, the viruses that they download, will only be able to affect their account and their files. It will not be able to screw up the, the entire computer. So, you know, worst case, you just blow away that child's account set it back up again, and now they've got a fresh account and the computer itself, and all the other accounts in that computer are fine. Now, nothing's 100%. There, there are strange cases where, well, not unfortunately not strange, I shouldn't say strange. There are definitely cases where Microsoft has a bug in their software that allows malware to jump up to admin level privileges even on a non-admin account. That happens and you can't, there's not, there's not much you can do about that. But nevertheless, you can at least be sure that the account you're using is a non-admin account so that unless the, the malware, the person who wrote that malware has figured out some way to um, bump up to admin privileges, that they are stuck. They can't do any more damage um, to anything outside that one account.
that's the key benefit. So it, again, you're, you're setting it up so you basically don't even trust yourself because you, even though let's say it's your computer, you're the you're the head of the household or you're the head IT person in the, in the house, whoever that may be, and you're in charge of making sure this computer is set up and properly and you're creating all these extra accounts, you should have an admin account that you hardly ever use. You set up that account and then you set up a separate account for yourself that is a non-admin account. The only time you'll ever need that admin account is when you're doing something that changes uh, a security setting or doing something that has security implications on your machine. And that shouldn't be very often. So you, even as the, the, the owner of the computer, even if it's just you in the household, you should have two accounts. One, for, one that you use on a daily basis, on an everyday basis, that's a non-admin account. And then an admin account that you only ever use when you're doing these special things, which should be rare. Now, there's a whole bunch of other great reasons why you might want to have these separate accounts. So if you should be doing it regardless, just for the reasons I've given, but let me throw out some other great, uh, great reasons why you might want to have separate accounts on your, on your machine. First of all, personally, from a privacy perspective, I think that everybody in the household should have their own account. They should be able to uh, have their, uh, their own email set up, their own web browser set up with their own bookmarks. They should be able to set their background picture to whatever they want. They should be able to have custom settings that only apply to them on their account so they can kind of personalize their experiment, uh, their, their experience. Uh, that's something that I personally believe everybody should have, but there's even other benefits besides that. For example, I know some people uh, will set up a special account just to do their banking. They're super paranoid about uh, their banking. They don't want to have any of their financial information uh, on their main account in case the, their their main account is hacked. So uh, they'll have I'll have a carry account that I use every day, and then I'll let's uh, have a carry finance account or a carry tax account or whatever I want to call it, or a carry business account uh, that I can log into separately whenever I want to do anything like go into my bank and, and deposit checks or check my balance or do my taxes uh, online, uh, these kind of things. And I keep that completely separate. And I only ever use that account for financial stuff. That way, for some reason on my day-to-day -day account, if I'm doing some web browsing and I, and I mess up and I click on the wrong link and download some malware, that malware cannot get to all my financial files because those financial files are in a different account. And because my accounts are non-admin accounts, there's no way for me to see the files that are in that, that other account. They're protected. So that's one great use for having a separate account. Another reason you might want a separate account, uh, if you've got a computer that you use uh, at work, um, maybe it's personal and work, you might want to set up different accounts for a personal account versus work account. Uh, even at work, if, there, if it's a work computer, you might want a separate account for when you're doing things like presentations. So uh, your presentation account will be a, just a bare bones account, maybe with nothing but PowerPoint uh, and none of your messaging apps like Slack or Spark or instant messaging accounts or whatever the case may be that, you know, where notifications are popping up, right? You never want to see those while you're giving a presentation. So if you have a whole separate account that's dedicated to nothing more than, than, than those special times when you're giving presentations, then there's nothing cluttering up the desktop. Maybe you can put a, you know, a really nice desktop picture in the background as opposed to the picture of your kids on holiday, you know, that you have for your personal account when you're at work. Uh, and, you know, and, and anything that might be on your desktop or on your dock, if you're using a Mac, that you might not just want to show to everybody when you're sharing your screen. That's a great reason to have a separate account with nothing more than just what you need for the meetings and the presentations and such. And finally, another really great reason to have separate accounts is for when you've got guests. Maybe you've got a friend coming into town for the weekend, or maybe they're spending uh, the week there, and maybe you've got uh, someone coming for an extended period of time uh, to your house, and you, of course they'd like to be able to get on the internet and do some web surfing from time to time. Set them up their own account. 
uh, make sure it's a non-admin account, and they can customize it to their heart's content. And when they leave, you can actually just delete the account. There's no reason to keep it around. It's just a temporary account long enough for them to come visit and use it while you're there, and then when you're gone, you just delete it. So there you have it. That's a fantastic security tip, and it's got all sorts of other benefits too. I highly recommend that you go right now and make sure that you uh, have separate accounts. Make sure that at the very least that you create a, an admin and a non-admin account and that you, on a daily basis, are using your non-administrative account so that if for some reason something goes wrong, at least you can, worst case, you can just delete that account and start over again without having to compromise, without your entire computer being compromised. Because anything that you can do, the malware can do. So if you're logged in as an admin, then that malware can do anything they want on that computer and affect not just your account, but all the other accounts as well. So go at least set up two accounts on your computer, an admin and a non-admin account. And I would recommend that you take it one step further and set up one account for everybody in your household, uh, including uh, guests, so that everybody has their own private setup. They can customize it to their heart's content. They can have their own privacy. You don't have to worry about logging in and logging back out all the time to your email accounts or whatever it is you're browsing on the web. Now, obviously, if you've got younger kids, I would recommend, obviously, that you know at all times um, their passwords. And if you've got control of the admin account, you can always reset those passwords and access whatever you need to access. So obviously, you need to keep your kids safe online, and you need to be able to have be able to have access to their accounts when you have to have it. So that's not a problem there either. You're listening to the America Out Loud Talk Radio Network. It's where we say, let the silent voices be heard. We invite you back to AmericaOutloud.com to get all the latest, make it a daily stop, and also get the app. You go right to the App Store and download our free app, and that will put all our content right into your hands on your phones and your tablets. It doesn't get any easier than that. So I did promise that I would answer your questions, and uh, this is a great day to do that. So I will answer uh, about as many as I can to fill up the rest of the time. Let's see how we can do here. Uh, I do want to remind you, of course, please send me your questions. I know you've got them. Send them to Parker at AmericaOutloud.com. That is C-A-R-E-Y-P-A-R-K-E-R at AmericaOutloud.com. You can find that uh, on the podcast webpage. So send me your questions. I will answer as many of them as I can. It may take me a little while to uh, to finally get to them because we keep having some really great guests, and I should have another one for you next week. But uh, now's a good time to catch up, so let's see how many I can answer before we run out of time. Let's start with Barb from Indiana. She asks, One of my friends just forwarded me an email that says it was from me, but I never sent it to them. Does this mean that I've been hacked? That is a great question. And the short answer is no, it doesn't, ne- doesn't necessarily mean that you've been hacked. So a couple things you should look at. Uh, first of all, uh, go to that email account and look in your sent folder. Uh, you might also check your archive or trash folder as well and see if that email is in there. Um, if it is in there, then that means that you probably have been hacked. Someone's been in your account besides you and has sent an email to somebody probably in your contact list or address list. Um, if that's the case, if you find evidence there that someone's been sending emails on your behalf, uh, then obviously the very first thing you should do is change your password for that account. Um, 
that will lock out the hacker because uh, until you change that password, they still have access and can st they, they can still send more emails on your behalf and you don't want that to happen. So first things first, change your password. Now, if for some reason you use that password anywhere else, then you, wherever you use that same password, you should go change those passwords as well and make sure you change them to something different. You should have unique, strong passwords for every single account you have. Uh, and since that's impossible to remember, I highly recommend that you get yourself a password manager, uh, which we discussed in a previous episode. And you can go back there to get all the information about that and what I recommend in terms of password managers. The other thing you should set up if you haven't already is set up two-factor authentication. Uh, that is a second step uh, for authorizing use of your account uh, beyond the password. So you not only have to enter the password, but you have to enter a one-time PIN uh, that you either get through a text message or you get through a special app that creates a time-based pin that rolls every 30 or 60 seconds or something. And that would mean that even if for some reason a hacker were able to guess or steal your password from someplace else, that they still couldn't get into your account and get up to mischief because they don't have that second factor. So change your password immediately. If that password is used anywhere else, change it there as well to something else. And uh, if possible, set up two-factor authentication. Now, if you don't see any evidence that, that uh, the email was actually sent from your account, it's possible that, 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 that your account still was hacked and that somebody uh, just found a way to cover the tracks. But it's also just very possible that someone else that you know was hacked, and what they did was they went through that person's contact list, their address book, and used those names uh, to send a whole bunch of other emails. It's actually, unfortunately, very easy to spoof the sender of an email. Um, at any point, I could send an email and make it appear to be from the president of the, of the United States if I wished. So you can't always trust the sender of an email. Uh, it's not necessarily who sent it. So the, it's possible that someone just somehow managed to find uh, your valid email account somewhere else and then sent an email that appeared to be from you that actually was not from you. One last point, if you do see evidence that, uh, that someone had sent some emails on your behalf without your knowledge, someone did hack your account, uh, be sure you contact uh, anybody else that you see that that email was sent to and tell them that it was not from you and that they should not open that message. Now this next question actually comes from a, a student in the class that I'm teaching at Duke. Uh, there's a continuing education program there called uh, the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute and uh, teach a class there. Just started uh, the spring class this uh today, actually. And uh, I wanted to bring it up because it's a good question. It's a question that I do get uh, from time to time. And we were talking about cloud uh, storage services, Dropbox, uh, Google Drive, Microsoft OneDrive, or whatever they're calling it uh, these days, iCloud, uh, things like that, the ones you've probably heard of. There are so many others. Uh, the question is, is, are they secure? Which one is quote unquote best? Uh, so first of all, that's a impossible question to really answer because there's, it really depends on what you're looking for from your cloud storage uh, providers. And for those of you that don't know, Dropbox and OneDrive and these sorts of things, when we say they're a cloud storage provider, what that really means is that it, you can, it's a place for you to store uh, some of your, your files uh, in a, a server, a computer that's out on the internet so that you can access it from more than one computer, perhaps from your from your laptop as well as your phone or from your work computer and your home computer. You, you've got these files or, or you want to share them with uh, your family, your spouse, or someone else. 
you create this, this folder that is a shared folder across the internet. And whatever files you put in this folder are automatically synced uh, through the magic of the internet uh, to everybody else who has that same shared folder. So when you're trying to figure out which of these are quote unquote best, and in the context of this show, that would usually mean the most secure or the most private, you need to consider a lot of things. First of all, most of these services do some form of encryption. So at a base level, your files are encrypted. But the key thing to note that with most of these services, and I think all the services that I just mentioned, uh, the, the master key is actually held by the service provider. So while hopefully the encryption works well enough that if they get hacked, that all the files that they would be able to get their hands on would be encrypted and therefore useless. If uh, law enforcement comes knocking and with a warrant or a national security letter or whatever, whatever they come with, uh, those service providers can still turn over your files, even though they're encrypted. The, the, the catch there is you can encrypt those files yourself before ever putting them in this drive. So if you're really worried about that, I would say encrypt the files yourself and then put it in a cloud service. And then it doesn't really matter what doesn't matter what cloud service you use. But if you, if you really care about this, you can, there are uh, higher, much higher security cloud services you could look at. Uh, I've mentioned privacy abroad, uh, which uses Swiss, Swiss safe, uh, in a previous episode. Um, spider Oak is another, uh, there's a Tresora. I'll have to look that one up. Uh, if you do Google searches on secure cloud services, these will come up. Um, but it, you could you could also just roll your own security. Basically, you can come up with a, a encrypt the files yourself. One of the tools that I've seen used is called Cryptomator. Uh, you basically either on your computer or or in one of these shared internet folders, you set up a secure folder and you give it a password, and everything in that folder is encrypted with your own encryption. So there's no way that the service provider will be able to give those files away because they don't have the key. That's the, that's the, the key thing to understand with a lot of these services is while they claim, you know, military grade encryption and, and all these sorts of things, that's, that's all well and good that they can, they can protect your files in transit. That is when they're being copied from your local computer up to these internet computers there and they're stored there. So they're stored in transit and then they're stored at rest while they're on those servers, they they have the master key. So if if law enforcement or maybe a very clever hacker or perhaps even somebody internal to the company that goes rogue wants to, they can actually get uh, get at your files and, and decrypt them. So that's why if you really want to put anything up in the cloud services that you believe is important or, or you want to keep private but you still want to share through the Internet, you should encrypt those files yourself. All right, next question. Susan from North Carolina asks, is it safe to give out my Wi-Fi password? Okay, so this is a very common situation, right? You've got somebody coming over to your house and everybody wants to get on the internet and nobody wants to use up their valuable cellular data minutes or perhaps they've got a laptop or an iPad or something that doesn't even have a cellular data option, so they want to use your internet. Maybe they're just stopping by, maybe they're a guest for a weekend, whatever the case may be, they want to use your internet. You want to be a nice host, so you want to give them your Wi-Fi password, right? Well, okay. So yes, you could do that. And, and obviously, you know, if you trust the person, that's fine. But what you need to kind of be thinking is that that person's device could be infected and they may not even know it. So if you really want to be safe, the best thing to do and what I re recommend that everybody do is set up a guest Wi-Fi account. Now, almost all modern Wi-Fi routers uh, and the Wi-Fi router is that box with the little antennas on it. 
uh, that is what is providing your Wi-Fi service in your house. So it's got a cable that comes into it, probably from your internet cable modem. That's the box given to you by Comcast or Time Warner or Google or whoever it is. Uh, and that goes into your Wi-Fi box. And that Wi-Fi box is what's giving you wireless internet access. All modern routers have the capability of setting up a guest Wi-Fi network. And you may have even seen this while visiting some friends. You may see... Uh, you know, the, the obviously the main, wi- you know, when you go into your, your device and you see the available Wi-Fi networks, you might see Joe's Wi-Fi and Joe's, de- Joe's guest Wi-Fi. That's how people are doing that. They're setting up two accounts. And the, and, and the advantage to this is they're, they're basically two completely separate networks. So if you give someone access to your guest account, those people can get to the Internet and do everything they want to do on the Internet. What they can't do is see all the other devices in your home that are also using that Wi-Fi. So if you've got computers and tablets and smartphones and uh, Internet of Things devices like your Nest thermostat or webcams or whatever, and you've got these things on your on your private network, if they're on the guest network, they can't see any of those things. And your devices can't see their devices either. It's separate. It's like having two completely different Wi-Fi accounts. So uh, unfortunately, I, it, it's not easy to explain to you how to do this uh, in a radio show. And every router is a little bit different. So you're going to have to look up the make and model of your router. And you can usually find a label on the bottom or on the back uh, to find the make and model of your router. It could be a Netgear or a D-Link or something like that. Look up the make and model. Go to their website and their support website and uh, just search for guest Wi-Fi. Uh, and it should be able to find instructions there on how to set that up. Now, if it happens, and this is becoming more and more common that your Wi-Fi is actually also built into your cable modem. In other words, the box that you get from your internet service provider is not just the cable, is not just a modem that converts whatever their cable signal is to internet service. It also has a built-in Wi-Fi router. Uh, you should still be able to set up a guest account. You may have to call them up and ask for some help with that uh, because you may not even have administrator privileges to do that yourself. If that is the case, I would recommend that you just go and buy yourself your own Wi-Fi router and just use that. Because, first of all, that means now that at least you're having some privacy. All the things that are happening within your network that don't go out to the bigger Internet are at least now private. <laughs> because if, if your cable modem slash Wi-Fi router is owned by your cable provider then they can not only see everything that you're doing when you're going out to the internet, they can also see what all the, the devices within your house are talking to each other. And personally, that just creeps me out. They already know <laughs> they already know too much about me. So uh, I would recommend that they're, they're, they're cheap. Just, well, some of them are cheap, some are more expensive. But uh, for anywhere from $50 to $150, you can have your own Wi-Fi router and know that you can configure it to do whatever you want. You have full control over it, and your cable provider or your service, internet service provider doesn't. Now that said, so whether you set up a guest account or whether you give them access to your to regular Wi-Fi account, if you're giving that password out, then I would change that password on a periodic basis. Uh, if for some reason that device that they have eventually does get hacked and they come back to your house, uh, they're gonna that device is gonna remember that password and try to do nefarious bad things uh, to the other devices on your network. So I would periodically change that password, uh, whether it's your guest password or your your main password. Our next question comes from Megan in Ohio, and she says, I have an old Windows 8 PC that is literally warped and won't even sit straight. I really need a new computer. I was looking at Apple computers, but they're so expensive. Someone told me to look at Chromebooks, which are much cheaper. Is that a good option? 
Megan, that's a great question. And it's a question that I get all the time. What computer should I buy? Now, that this could literally take hours to really go through everything you need to know. There's lots of things to consider when you're buying a new computer. If you need to run specific applications, like you, you, you need to run Microsoft Word uh, or some other specific applications, Photoshop, things like that, you're not going to be able to use a Chromebook directly. Chromebooks are basically a web browser in a laptop shape. Uh, it runs the Chrome browser uh, that you may be used to on a regular PC, uh, but that's mostly all it does. Now, some of the newer Chromebooks uh, will also be able to run Android apps coming up soon, uh, so that is an exciting development. And for most people, Chromebooks can be very useful uh, if you're someone who basically just surfs the web and checks their email and uh, maybe does some very simple things, documents and spreadsheets that you could do on just Google Docs or uh, iCloud or some of these other web-based uh, simpler services for spreadsheets and, um, and, and uh, word processing documents, then a Chromebook would be an excellent choice. Um, they tend to be uh, virus-free uh, because there's really nothing going on locally, locally on the computer. Uh, everything is done in the internet. Now, the downside, of course, is that everything is done on the internet. So if you're not connected to the internet, they're a lot less functional. Um, but if all you need to do is do uh, just some basic internet things that you, anything that you could do in a web browser, uh, and perhaps in some cases, anything you might be able to do with a simple Android uh, app, then a Chromebook could definitely be a great option. They tend to be a lot cheaper than other computers. Um, and so if, if cost is really an issue, and you don't need a lot of power, uh, then a Chromebook is something you should absolutely look at. But if you would need to do gaming or if you need to do uh, anything that takes more power or, or specific applications, then you're going to need to look, uh, at, unfortunately, at a Windows PC or a Mac. And I'm not going to dive into uh, all the various things you need to consider when you're looking at a PC versus a Mac. The main thing I want to call attention to that a lot of people may not be aware of is the Chromebook option. Definitely give that a look if you just need a very simple laptop. It's also great for travel, by the way, uh, particularly if you're doing international travel. It's a lot cheaper. Uh, it does mostly what you need to do while you're traveling. Uh, if for some reason it was lost or stolen, then, then it's not that big of a deal to replace because it's not that expensive. And there's not a lot of information stored on the device that could be hacked out. So uh, give Chromebooks a look if that's something that you think might fit your need. And finally, our last question comes from Mike in Idaho, and he asks, uh, We're trying to lock down our internet for the kids. Is there a way to only let them go to certain websites as opposed to trying to block just the bad websites? All right, Mike, that's a great question uh, and one that I hear um, often from, from, new, from new parents. Uh, what you're basically looking for there is what's called whitelisting versus blacklisting. So if you blacklist something, then you're basically saying, okay, you can go to everything but this. Uh, and you're asking for the, the reverse of that, which you can't go to anything except these sites that I approve of. So that's called whitelisting. Uh, so first and foremost, uh, as we talked about earlier in the show, I would strongly recommend that you set up a separate account for each child. Uh, not just even one account for both your kids. I would set up one account for each kid, uh, for each of your children, because they're probably different ages. And so as they grow up, I had the same situation with my daughters. They were close in age, but they weren't the same age. So there were definitely times when I would allow my older 
daughter to access some sites that I didn't let my younger daughter access. So there will be times, I guarantee it, when you're going to want to, because every kid's different, their personalities are different, their maturity levels are different, even if they're the same age, uh, where you might want to allow one child to do one thing, but not the other. So set up an account on your computer uh, for each child. Make sure that those accounts are non-administrative accounts. Uh, and then uh, both Microsoft and uh, Microsoft Windows and Apple's uh, Mac OS support parental controls. Uh, and these parental controls will allow you to not only uh, filter what websites they're allowed to see and not see, and I'm pretty sure both of them allow you to do the whitelisting that you're looking for. Um, they will also let you set up some really other nice things, uh, like, for instance, how much time uh, they can spend on the computer on a given day. Uh, which you can, you know, you can manually override if they've got a lot of homework to do or something like that, or for some reason there's an exception. Uh, you can restrict which applications that they can launch. Uh, maybe you want them to play certain games and not others, for example. Um, or you don't want them to, you know, maybe in some cases you don't want them to access uh, the Internet at all, but you have some special little fun game that they use to, to learn about counting or numbers or uh, the alphabet or things like that. So uh, it would let you uh, pick and choose which applications they can run and which ones they can't, things like that. So it's very helpful. Um, again, I can't really get into all the details here. I just suggest that you go to uh, both either the Microsoft Windows site or the Apple uh, Mac OS site and just search for parental controls. And I'm sure you will find an article there that will tell you how to get all of that set up. And that's going to do it, folks. That wraps up another episode. Uh, so glad I was finally able to get to some of your uh, listener questions. Please, I know everybody out there has got questions about privacy and computer security, so shoot me your questions at kerryparker uh, at americaoutloud.com. That's C-A-R-E-Y-P-A-R-K-E-R at americaoutloud.com. You can find that address on the website. Also on the website, you can find uh, links that uh, for things that I mentioned in this podcast, some helpful links there, uh, and some more information about the show. And you can, of course, access previous shows. Go back and check those out if you're just uh, tuning in as a new listener. There's a lot of great content there. Also on the website, you'll find links to uh, my Twitter feed. Uh, that I tend to use the Twitter uh, account uh, for more pressing, urgent uh, issues. Some of it's a little more technical, but you can always follow it there and uh, to get some up-to-the-minute news uh, from the security and privacy realm. You can also find links to my book and where to buy that. And the uh, Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons website. On, uh, on that website, I've got my blog, and I'll sign up for my weekly newsletter. The newsletter is a little bit different. Uh, I, I cover one topic every week, something short and quick, uh, with some tips that you can use with links to more information. If you want that, I try to keep it very short and to the point. Never give up your address because privacy is sort of my thing. So uh, sign up for the newsletter, and I'm not going to spam you with a bunch of other junk. Check that out, too. Now, if you like listening to the show radio style, uh, you can tune into the America Out Loud Network from 1 to 3 p.m. Eastern Time on iHeartRadio, AHA Radio, and TuneIn Radio to catch my shows. Um, you can also use the America Out Loud Radio smartphone app uh, to listen to this show and all the others from the network. And again, send me those questions, Parker at AmericaOutloud.com. Keep them coming, and I will answer as many as I can at the end of every show. And until next week, don't get caught with your drawbridge down. Stay safe out there, folks.